always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. I'm Camille and I'm seven. 44. I'm 76. I'm 37 years young. And I'm 87. Last year, I turned 50. I will be 85 next month. Next year, I'll be four. How old are you? That's a pretty straightforward question, right? But the answer may not be as straightforward as a simple number. Did you know that we actually have control of around 80% of how you will eventually age? Do the right things and you can live a longer, happier and healthier life. Do the wrong things and, well, you know what happens then. First of all, it's never too late. I have to say that because our cells are reproducing, replenishing all of the time. So we can actually influence the rate of ageing at any stage. However, unquestionably, the earlier the better, even in your 20s. Professor Roseanne Kenny from Trinity College has written a blueprint for how to age better. And it's not as hard as you might think. It might even be fun. I'm Conor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the secret to living a longer life. So, Roseanne, could we start with maybe an explanation as to why the age of a person isn't the be-all and the end-all and how two 30-year-olds, for instance, or two 80-year-olds might be years apart in the ageing process? I think that one of the most fascinating, interesting and positive things that has come to light in the science community is the fact that there is a difference and can be a big difference between our chronological age, that's our number, the number of candles on the birthday cake, and biological age, which is actually the ageing pace of each of our cells and can be measured by special clocks, biological clocks. So that's why the age of a person isn't about your number, but rather about the integrity of tissues and the amount of wear and tear, if you like, that those tissues have borne and have been able to bear and some of the residual effects of that wear and tear. And is there a big difference between two 30-year-olds? I mean, what kind of biological age span could we be talking about? I can actually um, give you a really good example of that, in fact, from a study that was carried out in New Zealand called the Dunedin study, which is still ongoing. And there... Participants, there were a thousand participants at birth registered and followed up the same thousand people every two years. They're in their mid forties now. So you had a cohort who were all the same chronological age, but then the researchers were actually able to take samples of tissues, particularly blood tissues, and measure the biological clocks of participants. And when those participants were aged 38, there was a difference in biological aging, although all were aged 38, of 12 years in the sample. So that just gives you a sense of that early on, age 38, there is that big span. And well, well, why was that? Why was there such mm. a big span? The factors that controlled the differences and the negativity were adverse childhood events alcoholism or divorce in a family, depression in a family, poor education, 
poverty, etc. They were big drivers for accelerated aging. And was that because they changed the lifestyle habits or the dietary habits or the environmental situation that these children had been living in? Or why would that have such a big impact? Because all of the factors, all of the adverse childhood factors I've cited are related to stress, psychological stress. And psychological stress directly influences cell aging through a number of different pathways. One of the best known is probably inflammation and higher levels of stress hormones such as cortisol trigger accelerated aging and changes in the cell and accumulation of toxic compounds in the cell, which aren't good for the cell and and are hard for the cell to clear. And it's been pretty well shown that childhood adverse events have that sort of an effect. And also of interest, I suppose, is that the fast agers continued to age at that pace in this particular study. Okay, so if if we were to pluck numbers uh, at random, if if you want, in that study, maybe they were all 38, but perhaps some of them had a biological age of 30 and some of them might have had a biological age of 45. Is that the kind of ballpark we're talking about? Yes. In fact, it was at age 38, some were behaving like 25 year olds and other like mid 40 year olds. Okay. now it's tempting to surrender control of the aging process to our genes. But our genetic makeup is not, as you say, everything when it comes to the aging process. So you mentioned stress. And what are the other factors that determine how we age? It's assumed that my genes are really bad. I can't do anything about it. My mum and dad both died in their 50s or 60s or whatever, and therefore I'm doomed. That is not the case. Likewise, it's assumed my mother and father lived well into their 80s or 90s, therefore Mm. I'm protected. Neither of those statements are necessarily true. The factors that influence our aging have actually, we've been, we've been best informed by the factors from the early research on areas called the blue zones. Some couple of decades ago, a couple of French researchers identified that there were five areas in the world where people were much more likely to live to a hundred years or more. But not only to live that long, but also to live well that long. And they're called the blue zone areas because actually Michel Poulain, who was one of the scientists, used a big blue pen to draw circles around the areas. And he called them the blue zones because of his blue pen, but they've become known now as the blue zones. And they're in Limaloda in uh, California, an Adventist group, Icaria, Greece, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, Okinawa, Japan and a little area in Costa Rica. And because of our understanding of why those centenarians were living longer, that's more or less informed the things that we can do to live a longer life. What's fascinating is that although those areas I've cited, those five areas around the world, are miles and miles apart, they shared the same characteristics which predicted longevity. Some of those characteristics were things like having a purpose in life, de-stressing rituals every day, caloric restriction or moderate calorie intake, moderate alcohol intake and plant-based diets, 
Most have some level of spirituality or religious practice. And then the biggest thing, the biggest thing that they shared in common was social engagement, social activity um, and an egalitarian society in, in most where two, three and in some cases four generations were all living in the same household engaging. And uh, one researcher sat in a kitchen in a carrier and couldn't believe the activity, people coming in and out of the kitchen all of the time so that when the centenarian who was sitting at the table They hardly got a chance to interview them. There was so much liveliness and activity (laughs) in the kitchen all day. And that multi-generational thing is important, is it? Yeah, in a number of ways for support, but also for learning. I mean, it's bi-directional. So the older uh, members of the family conferred a lot of wisdom to younger members, but also they gained so much from just the vitality and and discussion, etc., from younger members. And, and that actually brings me to another point, Connor, which I think is important, is we're very bad at having friends across generations. We're poor at that. And the, the data would say that something like 80% or 90% on the island of Ireland and in the UK of younger people don't have an older friend over 70. Mm. I think that it's not just about intergenerational family sharing and exchanging, but also friendships. Okay, now you've worked in the field of gerontology for many years and you've been at the heart of the Irish Longitudinal Study on Ageing. And that followed almost 9,000 adults aged 50 and older and generated more than 400 research papers over the past 12 years. So, Roseanne, can I ask you a really unfair question? Can I ask you to sum up that huge body of work in a couple of minutes and tell us what it has taught you about the ageing process in Ireland today? The first thing I would say is I was struck by the enormous contribution that people over the age of 50 and 70 make to Irish society. And when we started off this study, we engaged a lot with different NGOs, but also with different policymakers. And the overriding impression was that as people get older, they're a burden. That was what I heard persistently. The converse is the case. As people get older, they make a huge contribution to to society, even as simply as looking after grandchildren, for example. That frees up a whole new cohort to take part in the economic um, activity in Ireland. So older persons make a big contribution to uh, many elements of the fabric of society, including economics, as opposed to being a drain on economics, which is often the perception, but it's a misperception. And the other remarkable thing, and this is a really good news story, life gets better. It's not just in Ireland, but other studies which have replicated um, the, these quality of life measures have clearly shown that over the age of 50, quality of life gets better. And it continues to rise up to about 80 on average. So there are some people that it rises well beyond 80. And the, the final, I suppose, message that I've, I've learned, and this is the big impact that our entire life course has on how we age. So it, aging just doesn't start at 50 or 60, it's 70. It starts early and it's an accumulated issue. So if we can A, understand that and start to modify behaviours in our 20s, 30s and 40s, that will undoubtedly have a positive benefit in how we age.
Coming up, some easy ways to start feeling younger than your number. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Now, when you talk about modified behaviours, you're not talking about, or at least you're not exclusively talking about a better diet, more exercise, stopping smoking and drinking less alcohol, are you? You're mentioning other unexpected and maybe fun ways to make us more resilient to the ageing process. So can we go through some of those? You talk about solid friendships and how the friends we have shape how we age from a biological perspective. But surely our friends are kind of incidental to what our bodies and what the cells within our bodies do. Friends, friends are terribly important. And the, the two groups that we rely on for social engagement and closeness are friends and family. Now, the value of friends is we get to choose our friends. Uh, so if a friend is causing us stress or discomfort or whatever, you know, you can step out of that. The issue with family is it's fine if everybody gets on and there's a closeness in families, but that's not often the case or not always the case. And there's not infrequently disharmony in families. And that's not something we can step back from. And very often that will cause an individual to experience stress and that level of stress, um, comorbidities, other, uh, you know, illnesses, age related illnesses. That's been well shown in the literature. So that's why friends are terribly important. There's lovely work showing that if you share a problem with someone, the problem is truly halved. And it's so much easier in many instances to share a problem with friends than with mm. family, but, but, but certainly with friends. And why does having a laugh matter so much? Well, actually, laughter is, is kind of that part of that same um, engagement and bonding process. Laughter is about social bonding. Um, and even even animals laugh. A, a mother rat can tickle her offspring to bond with the offspring. I find I find that fascinating. Dogs laugh. And if you think of the sound that some of us make laughing, it does almost sound like a bark, but it certainly sounds in some cases like an animal sound. So we've evolved with laughter. Laughter is a very, very old behavior. And it, it is very much about social bonding. And you can tell from this sort of laughter, what a social bond is. If you think of uh, two friends who are having a good laugh versus the laugh that you hear if an employee is laughing at a boss's joke um, out of necessity. So, you know, la laughter can give us clues about the strength of social bonds, etc. And we don't laugh as much as we get older. Children, kids laugh 400 times a day. Mm. We certainly don't laugh 400 times a day. And, and in fact, it becomes a lot less frequent. But it's really good for not just a physical exercise, because it's very good for diaphragmatic muscles and intercostal muscles, but also as a de-stressing exercise. Now, you've mentioned stress a couple of times, and I just wonder how 
we can de-stress ourselves because I think a lot of us are stressed up to the eyeballs and not least because of the pandemic. So how do we relax? How do we stop those stress hormones doing all the damage? I suppose maybe a short step back just to reflect on what we mean by stress. You can have physical stress if you're running or doing weights, which is a good stress on muscles and on bones. It's a positive stress trigger for the body. Then, of course, there is psychological stress, which is the stress associated with pressure or depression or anxiety or worry. And then we can have then biological stress, which is an outcome really from psychological stress at a cellular level. And it's really reflected in a disruption of the normal pathways in the cell and accumulation of toxic products in the cell. So they're the three sorts of stress. And when I'm talking about stress, I'm talking about psychological stress, which leads on to biological stress. And the ways that we can counteract that are things like, well, well, what they do in the blue zones is, is they have de-stressing rituals during the day. So the Loma Lindens, the Adventists, have a prayer every day with a community in a group. We all want to be mature people. We all want to be mature spiritual people. Don't we yearn to be a mature body of Christ followers? The Sardinians, you may prefer this, Connor, have happy hour. <laughs> How could you tell? The Okinawans have green tea drinking rituals and sometimes uh, ginger tea drinking rituals. So these long-lived communities all have de-stressing rituals, which is interesting. And the way that I think in our society, if we can't apply some sort of a de-stressing ritual like that, is to do things like transcendental meditation or mindfulness or yoga. Even walking and talking with a, re a friend is de-stressing. Now, a couple of other things in the book uh, struck me. You mentioned how oral hygiene and showers can help people live longer. Can you tell me about them and why they might make a difference? Well, with respect to oral hygiene, we, we hadn't realised until fairly recently how important oral health is for good physical health. And believe it or not, poor oral health is associated with heart disease. And recently, in collaboration with the dental school in Trinity, we've shown in the TILDA study that the number of teeth actually determines the rapidity of cognitive decline. And the hypothesis behind that is that chewing stimulates uh, sensory signals, which are important for keeping our brain vibrant and interactive. You, you, you asked about showers. I'm, I'm a great advocate now for showers. I wasn't when I started doing this research. Cold showers, that is. <laughs> um, and uh, every, when I, when I introduce this topic, most people who don't have cold showers say, oh, there's no way. I'm one of those people. Well, trust me. I, I was that person three years ago. And this, the science behind cold showers is actually very strong, particularly if you couple cold showers with physical exercise during the day. There's a huge influence on the immune system, such that, you know, big studies in the Netherlands have shown much less like cohorts who coupled cold showers and physical activity are much less likely to require days sick at work or antibiotics or get chest infections, etc. It doesn't seem to matter how long you're under the shower for, the cold shower, as long as you get the hit, the shock. 
The other interesting thing was when, when I discuss this with people, they say, no, I'm one of those people I couldn't possibly. But actually, over 90% of the study participants in this study, and they were taking showers for six to nine months, continued to take cold showers, even though they all said, oh, yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, it's hard. They still continued because they were getting the hit from the showers. There was something else you mentioned, though, about brushing your teeth and how you should do it on one foot. So that's about falls. Falls become much more common after the age of 40. I, I think you'd be really surprised if you saw the graphs of frequency of falls after 40. Very, very infrequent before 40. And then quite a big jump in frequency. Now, the thing about falls is they're the commonest cause of fractures. And if somebody gets a hip fracture, for example, half of people who get, have a hip fracture never get back to their previous level of independence. That's a staggering figure. And um, so really it's to prevent falls. That's the whole point. And a simple test that listeners can do is you should be able to stand for 30 seconds on each leg, eyes open with your body absolutely still. And then for at least 10 seconds on each leg, eyes closed. And if you can't do that, it means you have issues with balance and proprioception, which are the sensors in the legs, because it means you're over dependent on your visual cues for balance rather than the intrinsic balance cues. So training is possible for balance. And one simple thing is when you're brushing your teeth, stand on one leg. When you're washing the dishes, stand on one leg, etc. Now, finally, an awful lot of what comes out of your book is based on our mindsets and how optimistic or pessimistic we are in our outlooks. But do you think an optimistic outlook on the world can really make that much difference to how much we age? It's not only what I think, but the evidence is really strong to support this, which is fantastic. How you perceive yourself, your aging perceptions, your perceptions of your biological age, if it's youthful, actually determines physical aging and cognitive or brain aging. And the, the reasons are, again, we come back to stress at a cell level, at a biological level, that more youthful perceptions and people who have more youthful perceptions are less likely to experience stress or at least are better able to adjust and adapt to stress and attenuate or modify the consequences of stress or uncomfortable circumstances during the day. But also there's something about having a positive outlook that decelerates, slows down the aging process. There was a fantastic study done some years ago in the early 90s by David Snowden's group called the Nun Study, where he followed a group of nuns through to death in a convent, 678 nuns in a convent in Minnesota. And what he showed was that when the nuns went into the nunnery, they spent one year all in their 20s you know, kind of preparing and being, being certain that this is what they wanted to do. And at the end of that year, they each wrote a letter and he had access to those letters, which were 60 years old. And from those letters was able to determine the attitude and outlook of those young novices. And then, of course, he had the 80 year old nuns now knew what their disease status was like and health status, etc., and was able to actually determine what an impact attitude had, independent of all other factors, on their eventual uh, physical and cognitive aging process. The nuns that had a positive outlook that you could tell from the letters, they were significantly less likely to get Alzheimer's disease. But more important, they died seven years later 
than the nuns wow. that had a negative attitude. So, uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So I think to try in so far as possible to have a positive outlook would be the bottom line. Have as much laughter as possible in your life. Make it if it's not intuitive, make it through media, whatever it takes to to have a good laugh. Friend with friends is the best way and that'll help you with attitude. Professor Roseanne Kenny, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Connor. That's all for today. My thanks to Professor Roseanne Kenny for joining us. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan.